course. VOA Weather Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from The Voice of America. I'm Dan Friedel. And I'm Katie Weaver. This program is aimed at English learners. So we speak slowly and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the podcast, the Higher Education Report takes us to the well-educated state of Minnesota. Then Andrew Smith joins us to discuss an English phrase about the slow process of learning something new. We close with our newest America's President's episode about Joe Biden. But first... A Chinese car group says China likely overtook Japan as the world's biggest auto exporter in 2023. The Chinese Passenger Car Association, or CPCA, says automakers like BYD Auto, Cherry, and others are seeing increased sales overseas. The CPCA announced that exports of Chinese cars jumped 62% to a record 3.83 million vehicles. Japanese customs data showed car exports at 3.5 million for the first 11 months of the year, not including used vehicles. China's total auto exports were estimated to hit 5.26 million units last year. Japan's full-year exports were predicted at 4.3 million units, the CPCA found. China's rise as a top auto exporter is due in part to the strength of its electric vehicle, or EV, automakers. BYD overtook Tesla as the world's top seller of EVs late last year. Most of the sales were within China, however. Some governments are concerned about Chinese auto exports affecting sales of their own automakers. In September, the European Commission started an investigation into Chinese-made electric vehicles over subsidies they may have received. And the administration of U.S. President Joe Biden is considering raising taxes on some Chinese goods, including EVs. The Wall Street Journal reported last month. China is the world's largest auto market. Vehicle sales there rose 5.3% last year. Sales of battery-powered vehicles in China last year increased 20.8%. And sales of hybrids grew 82.5% last year. Sales of Chinese-made cars are expected to make up 63% of total sales in China this year. Sales of Chinese cars jumped 15.7% last year. 
French auto brands suffered in China in 2023, with sales down 41 percent. Sales of Japanese cars dropped almost 11 percent last year, while U.S. brands saw sales drop 1.4 percent. I'm Gregory Stockel. Minnesota has the second highest education level in the U.S. as measured by the scholarship research website Scholaroo.com. A representative from Scholaroo told VOA Learning English that the state has a high percentage of residents with advanced degrees. It is ranked above Connecticut and just behind Massachusetts overall. The state is number one. In the percentage of residents with doctoral degrees, Scholaru says, the top study programs there are in education, medicine, and law. VOA Learning English talked with students and college supporters to learn why they think Minnesota is a good place for higher education. Akil Kolengode is an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota Rochester. He is in a new program that offers an undergraduate degree in two and a half years, compared to the traditional four. His study program is in health sciences. It is called Next Gen Med, which deals with medical administration. He hopes to move from studying to working at the nearby Mayo Clinic, a well-known hospital based in Rochester. It is a big reason why I chose to stay in Minnesota," he said. Colin Goad is in his second year of college. He said he and his classmates saw how the COVID nineteen pandemic took away some of the in person college experience from their older friends. He said we felt a little more motivation because we understood how much it could be taken for granted. He also saw the example of his parents working in the medical field and wanted to follow their path. Colin Goad said many young people in Minnesota think they can only reach their goals by moving away. These younger students are always told, "Oh, everything is so good when you leave home and when you can finally live on your own." But you can do all of those things when you are still in your hometown. Saving money, getting the same education, and sometimes maybe better education if you're in your hometown. Lori Carell is the chancellor, a top official, at the University of Minnesota Rochester. She said a number of universities in the U.S. are part of a new program testing college in three. It aims to get students a degree in three, not four, years. She said many students in the U.S. are questioning the value of college because of the cost. They also are concerned about finding a good job when they finish. Schools like hers are working to help students complete their degrees with a good job and not a lot of debt. Students stay in school all year and work at the Mayo Clinic, which is close by. Carell explained. She said. We need people to come to Minnesota. 
there are a lot of needs for people with advanced degrees in Minnesota. Making this three-year undergrad option even more attractive. Once people finish their undergraduate degree, she said, they can move on to advanced degrees and find a good job in Minnesota. Students from other states like Minnesota too. Sia Sacardande came from Texas to study psychology at the University of Minnesota's main campus in Minneapolis and St. Paul, known as the Twin Cities. She said she considered schools in California, Michigan, and the rest of the U.S., but the combination of a strong educational program and a good financial aid offer brought her to Minnesota. She said she and her classmates consider undergraduate degrees just the start. I plan to go to law school. I have friends who want to go to medical school at the university. I have friends who want to get their master's and their graduate degrees at the university. So I think the university definitely like encourages that and like uses like whatever resources they can to like help us like plan a future and a career beyond just going to school there. But she also said the school wants students who come from families that might not be considering college. Sacardande noted the university's scholarship for Native American students called the Native American Promise Tuition Program. It started last year. The university says it pays for 100% of school fees for students from recognized Native American tribes in Minnesota. In addition, Sacardande helped with a recent campaign by a state lawmaker to push the state to pay low-income students' costs for attending a Minnesota public college. She said, The North Star Promise Scholarship Program will make sure all students in Minnesota think about college. The state senator who worked on the project was Omar Fateh, whose district is in Minneapolis. He said he is not surprised Minnesota ranks high in education. Minnesotans have long seen the value of higher education as a path to economic mobility, he said. Fateh said it is important to make higher education possible for all students in the state. He said the scholarship he is supporting can be used at both two-year and four-year colleges. Fateh's parents were immigrants from Somalia. His father came to the U.S. to study at Montana State University. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, but he was not a good student in high school. He said he was saved by a school program. Uh, a program called the Pathways Program, which recruited students that were deemed to be quote-unquote at-risk youth um, into Northern Virginia Community College. It's, that's why I'm a, big, I'm a big supporter of uh, community colleges, because I believe it really, it really helped me and saved me. Carell said Minnesota clearly values higher education. There's a great appreciation for advanced degrees and higher education in the state of Minnesota. She added that education leaders there feel a responsibility to give students a good ROI, or return on investment for their time in school. 
Sakardande thinks students from inside and outside of the U.S. should consider Minnesota schools. It's just a little bit less recognized than states like California and the Ivy Leagues, but I think once you get to Minnesota, you understand that there are great things to do here. I'm Dan Friedel. And now, words and their stories from VOA Learning English. On this program, we explore words and expressions in the English language. We give definitions, examples, notes on usage, and sometimes we use them in short conversations. Today, we talk about the process of learning to do something. For example, if you want to play a musical instrument, you need to learn how. You must take small steps. You learn how to hold or sit at the instrument. You learn how to read notes and how to play basic chords. Then you progress to short, easy songs. In other words, you need to take baby steps. Babies can look funny when they are learning to walk. Their steps are unsure. Their knees do not quite bend fully. They do not walk straight and often fall down. The more they walk, the steadier they get on their feet. Soon, their unsteady baby steps lead to a smoother, often speedy gait. We often use the term to describe how to reach a complex goal. Small baby steps can lead to the bigger goal. We will often use the term to suggest that someone slow down and be patient. A similar English expression goes, You have to walk before you can run. Let's listen as two friends use these idioms. Hey, how are your piano lessons going? Slowly. I want to play a real song, but my teacher has me working on these same set of chords over and over again. They are difficult and boring at the same time. I've been playing piano for years, and chords are important. They are the foundations of music. You need to know how to walk before you can run. I know, I know. But I also must be able to play a song by next month. Why are you in such a hurry? Learning music requires patience. Take baby steps. Please, no more advice. I told a friend I could play the piano, and now she wants me to play at her children's birthday party. Oh, in that case, I have other advice for you. What's that? You reap what you sow. Thanks a lot. Hey, what are you doing next month? Learning a language is a lifelong process. To keep yourself from burning out, take baby steps. Learn a little every day. 
and soon your English will be fabulous. And that's all the time we have for this Words and Their Stories. I'm Andrew Smith. I'm Dan Friedel, and you're listening to the Learning English Podcast. We just heard Andrew Smith talk about the process of learning to do something new. Andrew, can you remind our listeners about the phrase you used? Sure, Dan. This week, I talked about the expression, you have to walk before you can run. Andrew, where do you think this expression comes from? Well, Dan, you know, we have all seen a baby take his or her first unsure steps. They're always a bit unsteady, or maybe they have to hold on to someone's hand to stay balanced. You do not usually see a baby start running right away. That's true, Andrew. Everybody probably had to learn to walk before they could run, except for perhaps the Olympic runner Usain Bolt. <laughs> I think we will probably have to check with his mother about that. But my guess is he still had to walk before he could run. So, Andrew, let's talk about some things we enjoy doing today that took us a while to learn. You mentioned how it takes some people a long time to learn to play a musical instrument. But what is something where you had to walk before you could run in your life? Well, I think a good example is learning to play the sport of tennis. I started pretty young, and at the beginning, you're just trying to make contact with the ball. And there's a lot to learn about the sport. And so you have to learn it step by step. So I definitely had to walk before I could run playing tennis. But once I could run, boy, it was fun. Andrew, that's a good example. And I know making a really good shot in tennis is rewarding for all that hard work. <laughs> it is. And, and Dan, what about you? Well, for me, the thing I like to talk about is learning how to row. In the late summer of 2019, when I was living in Washington, D.C., I took rowing classes with a local rowing team. Now, this is the kind of rowing that people do in the Olympics. Uh, some people call it crew. That's known to be a hard sport. Is that true? Well, yes and no. The sport takes a fair amount of physical fitness, which is why in the movies you see people who are on the crew team exercising a lot. But when you're an adult, you don't have to be in such great shape. But the hard part, really, of rowing is the learning the technique, and that requires a lot of patience. The coaches start you off in a very flat, stable boat. It's just about impossible for the boat to tip over, but the problem is you cannot move very fast. So I have to admit I wanted to run before I could walk. After three or four practices in the flat boats, they finally put all of us in boats that were still very safe, but we finally felt like we were moving through the water. I bet that felt good. You're right, Andrew, it did, but it still took me 
three or four more years before I was finally able to feel like I knew what I was doing and could actually go fast-ish. I'm still a pretty slow rower, even though my teammates and I are trying very hard to make the boat move fast. Well, I'm sure it feels good uh, to have made the progress you have made. And that reminds me of what I mentioned in this week's story. Learning a language is a lifelong process, and it requires baby steps. You cannot reach fluency right away, whether it is in speaking a language or in rowing a boat. And at the beginning, you do feel like you're learning a lot, but then you might come to a point where you feel like you still have to just go step by step. Andrew, you're right about that. I think that the similarity between something like rowing and learning a language is that once you get to the point where you feel confident, like you feel confident talking to strangers, or you feel confident being in the boat and maybe not having a coach watch you all the time, I think that's the point where you start to gain a little bit of knowledge. Like I felt that when I was rowing, I learned a lot at the beginning, but I couldn't really put it into practice. The coaches gave me a lot of instruction, but like I was just trying to keep myself from falling in the water some of the time. And after four years of practice, I have more confidence. So I'm improving a little bit all of the time. Well, and that's just like learning a language. We do continue to learn all the time. It just sometimes it takes a while. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining us. That was a fun chat, and thanks for helping us understand this English phrase. Thanks, Dan. VOA Learning English presents America's Presidents. Today, we are talking about Joe Biden. He took office in 2021 becoming America's 46th president. A member of the Democratic Party, Biden had been in national politics for a long time before he got to the White House. He served 36 years in the United States Senate, representing Delaware. After that, he held two terms as the nation's vice president, serving under President Barack Obama. Because Biden's presidency is so recent, this report will not discuss his time in office. Instead, it will discuss his earlier life. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was born in 1942 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. His family moved to Delaware when he was 10 years old. The Bidens were Roman Catholics of Irish ancestry. Joe was educated in private Roman Catholic schools as a youth. Later, he attended the University of Delaware. He received a degree in political science and history in 1965. He also fell in love at Delaware with fellow student Nelia Hunter. The two married the following year. 
Over the next few years, the couple had three children. Joe Biden also received his law degree from Syracuse University College of Law in New York. In 1972, at age 29, Joe Biden was elected to the U.S. Senate, representing Delaware. A few weeks later, Biden faced tragedy. Nelia and their children were in a car accident. She and daughter Naomi were killed in the crash. Sons Beau and Hunter were injured. Biden was suddenly a single father. He briefly considered leaving his Senate seat, but he decided to stay in office. Unlike most lawmakers, however, he did not move to Washington. He did not want to uproot his little boys. Instead, he traveled daily to and from Washington D.C. on the train, so he could be home with his sons every night. The senator continued this custom for thirty-six years. Also during that time, Biden met Jill Jacobs, an English teacher. They fell in love and married in nineteen seventy-seven. Daughter Ashley was born in nineteen eighty-one. Biden was a candidate for president in nineteen eighty-seven and two thousand seven. After Barack Obama was nominated as the Democratic Party's two thousand eight presidential candidate, he asked Biden to join the campaign as his running mate. They won election. And Biden began serving as vice president. Four years later, Obama and Biden were reelected for a second term. Most political experts say Biden was an especially powerful vice president. He and Obama worked closely together, and Biden was influential in policy decisions. The president sought Biden's help in establishing a national economic stimulus program, for example. Biden also traveled the world as vice president and led diplomatic missions in troubled regions. He is widely considered one of the most successful vice presidents in American history. During his second term as vice president, Joe Biden faced another family tragedy. His adult son, Beau, died of brain cancer in 2015. Joe Biden had considered running for president in 2016, but after Beau died, the vice president decided against it. The death of his son was too recent. And the grief was too great to spend time on a campaign. Biden announced his candidacy for president in April of 2019. At 77, he was among the oldest presidential candidates ever. His age became an issue of debate during the campaign. 
But his main competitor, President Donald Trump, was just three years younger. Joe Biden called the presidential race a battle for the soul of America. He won that battle when Americans went to voting stations on November 3, 2020. U.S. election officials announced later that week that Joe Biden and his vice presidential running mate, Kamala Harris, had defeated President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. Biden received 81 million votes in all. More than any other American presidential candidate in history. Trump won about 74 million. However, Trump rejected the official vote count as incorrect and dishonest, calling the election stolen. Many of Trump's supporters took the same position, causing severe division in the country. On January 20, 2021, Joe Biden was sworn in as President of the United States. In a speech that followed, he called on the American people to seek unity with one another. He described unity as one of the most elusive qualities in a democracy. I'm Katie Weaver. And that's the Learning English podcast for today. Thank you, Katie, for that report. And thanks to our VOA colleagues for their work on today's program. Most importantly, thank you for listening. For more, visit our website at learningenglish.voanews.com. I'm Katie Weaver. And I'm Dan Friedel.